In his book, The Three Edwards, Thomas Costain retells the story of Reynold III. Reynold III lived in the 14th century. He was Duke of Galders, which is a, a section in modern-day Netherlands. But his capable younger brother, Edward, led a revolt against him and took his throne. But instead of killing his brother, Edward imprisoned him in a special room built just for Reynold in Newark Castle. According to legend, Edward promised Reynold that he could regain his crown as soon as he was able to leave this room. This shouldn't have been difficult because the room featured doors and windows of regular size, and none of them were locked or guarded. The problem was Reynold's size. Reynold was a man of enormous appetite. He was grossly overweight. And Edward knew his brother, and so during his imprisonment, he made sure his brother was served a variety of delicious foods each day. And instead of fasting or dieting to lose weight and get his way out of prison, Reynold grew even larger. When Edward was accused of cruelty, his response was, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he so wills. Reynold stayed in that room for 10 years until Edward died in battle, and then Reynold regained his throne. But according to legend, they had to actually cut a hole in the wall of the room to make it large enough for him to get out. And uh, he, when he regained his throne, he only reigned for a matter of months because by that time, his health had been so ruined by being overweight. Reynold was a prisoner of his own appetite. And the legend of Reynold III is actually a true portrait of the spiritual condition of mankind. We are slaves to sin. We incur guilt because of our sins that we can't atone for. And even if we could atone for our past sins and they could be forgiven, it's only a matter of time before we incur more guilt because of our addiction to sin. We need to be rescued from the penalty our sins deserve. We also need to be rescued from the enslaving, addicting power of our sins. And the rescue God has provided for us is the theme of our study in Ephesians 1 this morning. Please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We're studying Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and in most of Paul's letters to the churches, if you read them, one of the things you'll notice is that he gives a brief introduction, and then he usually follows that with a prayer for the church. It, it lets them know how he's praying for them. And there is a magnificent prayer in Ephesians 1 that we're going to get to. But before we get there, Paul breaks out into this amazing doxology of praise to God for his plan of redemption, his eternal plan of salvation offered to sinners. And so what Paul does is he writes this massive sentence that runs from verse 3 of Ephesians 1 all the way down to verse 14, and the whole thing is explaining God's plan of salvation. This impossibly long sentence can be divided into three stanzas, each of which ends with the refrain, to the praise of His glory or to the praise of the glory of His grace. And each stanza focuses on the role that one member of the Trinity plays in the plan of salvation. In verses 3 through 6, it is God the Father who comes up with the plan and comes up with the blessings and chooses those who will be saved. In verses 7 through 12, the Son purchases the blessings that the Father has given. In verses 13 through 14, the Holy Spirit applies the blessings that the Son purchased on the cross to our hearts 
by faith. Now, we've already looked at the Father's role in this eternal plan of salvation. Today, we're going to begin looking at the role of God the Son. But before we do that, please bow with me in a word of prayer because we need God's help to help us see this and be moved by it. Dear Heavenly Father, as we try now to understand how it is that our guilt can be forgiven, please help us to see and understand what the Apostle says and open the eyes of our hearts to be moved by and wonder at what Your Son has done, and to rejoice in the glory of Your grace, whose riches are the source of it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Though we're going to zero in on verses 7 through 12 today, I'm actually going to read the whole sentence, and as I do, see if you can pick out, as I'm reading, where the apostle changes the subject from God the Father to speaking of God the Son at the end of verse 6 and into verse 7. See if you can spot the transition as we read it together. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him." with a view to an administration that would be suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory." In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. There are two important shifts that happen in verse 7. Paul changes the verb tense from speaking about what God the Father did in eternity past in the plan of salvation to now speaking in the present tense of what we experience in salvation, he also shifts from focusing on God the Father to focusing on God the Son. And we know he's speaking of the Son because at the very end of verse 6, there is this saving grace which the Father bestows on us in the Beloved. Look at the end of verse 6. Do you see the word Beloved? Uh, it's capitalized because our translators are trying to point out to you that the Beloved is a person. Uh, The Beloved One here is the Lord Jesus Christ. What did the Father say of Him at His baptism and at the transfiguration? This is my Beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's that's the kind of language Paul is using here, the Beloved One. So, if when you get into verse 7, 
you're confused by who is this him that's being referred to? Are we, wait, are we still talking about the Father? Are we talking about the Son? Uh, you don't have to be confused because the him is referring back to the beloved one of the Father, God the Son. And what Paul is doing here, again, is he's transitioning from the Father to the Son and from eternity past to redemption present. And as he does so, what he's actually going to do is he's going to back up again and take another run at showing us this amazing eternal plan of salvation that's going to reach a crescendo again in verse 12, uh, highlighting the glory of God's graciousness to us in this plan. So, he's backing up now again, and we're going to work towards another crescendo. And as we work towards it, Paul's going to show us three benefits that come to us through Christ's role in the plan of salvation, and today we're only going to be able to look at the first one. It is redemption. The first great benefit of the Son's work that we experience in salvation is redemption. Again, in verse 7, in the Father's beloved one, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. The key word in verse 7 is redemption. Now, in the New Testament, the word redeemed uh, means to be released by a payment or set free by a ransom, and it was used of three groups of people. It was used to speak of a prisoner of war who was freed or a hostage who had their freedom purchased by another, but more than anything else, it was used most often in the Greco-Roman world and in literature outside the Bible, and I would submit to you even in the Bible, this word is used most often for people whose freedom from slavery is purchased by another. The language of slavery is being used here. You and I were born into a kind of slavery. Slavery to what? Well, look at verse 7. It defines it for us. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We were slaves to trespasses and sins. In John 8, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In what sense were we slaves to trespasses and sins? Paul explains it to Titus. He says, we also were once foolish ourselves. This is before we came to Christ. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various desires and pleasures. Now, that English word in verse 7, trespass, uh, I think it could be a, a bit misleading because in street language in English, when we think about trespassing, we think about like going on someone's property without their permission. But that's not what the New Testament is getting at by using this word. The New Testament idea of trespassing is knowingly, deliberately, purposely breaking God's law. It's an intentional breaking of God's law. All of us have God's law written on our hearts, informing our consciences, but we break God's law over and over again, and we incur guilt, not just guilt feelings, but objective moral guilt before His law. God's law requires that we act in a certain way because He created us and made us and owns us, uh, but none of us lives up to those requirements. Uh, we trespass His law, and therefore we're guilty, and that puts us in a condition where we need desperately His forgiveness. Now, the seriousness of our position as transgressors of God's law, and the seriousness of what position that puts us in, Paul doesn't go on to elaborate here in verse 7, but just a little bit later in Ephesians, in chapter 2 actually, he elaborates on what position 
our trespasses have put us in. Turn over to Ephesians 2 verse 1. If you just look down at Ephesians 2 1, look at what Paul says our trespasses get us into. Uh, Ephesians 2 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Our trespasses produce a spiritual death in us. We're, we're, we're still biologically alive, but we're spiritually dead, dead to God, dead to the life of God, dead to spiritual stimuli. Verse 2, we're, we were in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. When the New Testament uses that phrase, sons of disobedience, what it's communicating is that disobedience was part of our DNA. Let, let me, uh, let's apply it to me. I'll apply it to myself. To say that I'm a son of disobedience is to say that disobedience is at the very core of my being. It's who I am and what I live for. It's what makes me tick and gets me out of bed in the morning. It's in my DNA. Our trespasses make us sons and daughters of disobedience in the sense that we so regularly, consistently, predictably, reliably sin over and over and over again. It's like clockwork. It's like second nature that we can truly be called sons and daughters of disobedience, and it's not an exaggeration. It's not some kind of slander on the part of the apostle. That's how regularly and consistently and predictably we sin. We're sons and daughters of disobedience. Verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived, this is before we came to Christ, in the desires of our flesh, indulging, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So, our trespasses earned us a destiny so synonymous with judgment that you could rightly call us children of wrath. That's where we were headed because of our trespasses. This is the trouble our trespasses get us into. It's bad. It's really bad to be objectively guilty before God's law. It's dreadful to be spiritually dead. It's a hideous thing to be so consistently and predictably disobedient to God's law that we can rightly be called sons and daughters of disobedience. It's a horrific thing to be destined to experience the righteous and appropriate and just anger of God at our sins. And so, when Paul says that the redemption we have through Christ's blood forgives our trespasses, it's a glorious thing. It means we've been freed by a payment, and we've been freed not just from our objective guilt, but also from the penalty we incur because of our guilt. We've been freed from the just anger of God at our sins and from the eternal penalty our sins deserve. That is the good news and the heart and soul of what verse 7 is communicating. But if you take a step back and you try to analyze, well, okay, Paul, what do you mean by this redemption? And you look at his words and you look at his writing style. Let's just stop for a moment and be honest, okay? Paul's writing style feels very wordy to a modern American reader. And the reason is because he piles up prepositional phrases, in Him, through His blood, according to the riches of His grace. Now, that, that feels wordy, but He's using those prepositional phrases to define and help us understand what it means that we have redemption. So, let's look at some of these phrases. First of all, this redemption is happening through Christ's blood. Our trespasses put us in deep trouble, 
And the point I want to make is this. The price of our redemption wasn't cheap. It wasn't inexpensive. The ransom that had to be paid for us came at an enormous cost. Our redemption was bought through Christ's blood. And there's far more to that simple phrase, through His blood, than meets the eye. It's filled with the richness of the old covenant sacrificial system. Now, let me say, before I explain that system, no one is happier than I am that we live under the new covenant. I'm really thrilled about it. But it's at, it's, it's at exactly this point when we talk about the blood of Christ that I actually think those who lived under the old covenant had an advantage over us. And that is because the Old Testament sacrificial system did two things. Number one, God provided it for His people as a way to approach Him in worship and have a temporary covering for their sins. It served a functional purpose, but it also was didactic. It taught a lesson, and it was a profound object lesson designed by God to assault all the senses. Let me illustrate for you. Imagine that you're… Uh, so, we have uh, Resurrection Sunday is coming up on April 9th, right? So, Passover, Passover is coming up on uh, April 6th. Passover is coming. So, let's use Passover as an example. Imagine for a moment that you're the head of a household, uh, and Passover is coming, and it's going to be your responsibility as the spiritual leader of the home to uh, offer the lamb on behalf of the family uh, in the temple. Well, the Bible is very clear that you need to, the family needs to live with that lamb. You need to bring that lamb home, and it needs to live with the family for a time before, uh, for a number of days, actually, before it's sacrificed. So, you bring the lamb home, and there's no reason for us to believe that lambs were less cute in biblical times than they are today. And so, the lamb lives in the house. They were used to having animals live in the house with them. Or maybe if, if, you're, maybe if you're a little bit wealthier, you have a courtyard, maybe, maybe it lives in the courtyard with the other pets. If, if you're in that stage of life where you still have kids at home, maybe the kids play with it along with the other pets. And uh, when the appointed day comes, uh, you take the lamb. The, the, the lambs, like all sheep, they're skittish. But over the few days it's with you, the, the lamb learns to trust you, and so it's time to take the lamb to the temple, and so the whole family says goodbye, and you take the lamb with you, and uh, lambs are skittish, so when it sees all the commotion and noise in the temple, it probably gets a little bit nervous, so maybe you pick up the lamb and you put it over your shoulders, and Jerusalem is at altitude, by the way, and in spring it's still cold there, like it can be cold here in Virginia, and so you feel the, the warmth of it on on your neck, and you can feel its heart, bleed, uh, uh, its heart beating, and then uh, you wait in line, and when your turn comes with the priest, you put the lamb down, and the priest comes uh, with a knife, or maybe you have a, a ceremonial knife for Passover that's been passed down through the family, and uh, you give it to the priest, and um, what you're supposed to do next, according to the Bible, is, according to the Old Testament, you're supposed to put your hands on the head of that lamb. And what you're doing, there's a symbolism there. You are appointing this lamb to be your representative with God and to bear the weight of your sins. And while your hands are on that lamb's head, the priest is going to come, and with one very humane, swift, and deaf stroke, he's going to slit the throat of that lamb. And you're, sorry, and you're going you're gonna to hear... <clears throat> You're going to hear its bleats, 
you're going to smell the blood, um, you're going to feel <clears throat> the lamb collapse under the weight of your hands, and it seems to me in that moment <clears throat> there's going to be three realities that are inescapably clear to you. Uh, number one, there is a God in heaven who's holy and, and He hates sin. The wages of sin is death, but God has loved you enough to provide a substitute to die the death that you deserve to die. Now, that animal, and, and whether it's the uh, Passover lamb or other kinds of sacrifices, guilt offerings, sin offerings, the Old Testament is clear that those animals can't just be like uh, killed in any, other, in, in any way and then offered on the altar by the priest. Uh, for instance, you can't strangle the animals. Why is that? Well, their blood had to be poured out. That's why their throats were slit. Uh, verse 17, uh, in Leviticus 17, God says, for as, as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life, and that's one of the reasons in the dietary laws God wanted His people to drain meat of blood. He didn't want them eating blood because blood is identified with the, the life of all creatures that have the breath of life. And then later on, in same chapter, Leviticus 17, God says, for the life of all flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you uh, for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Uh, so, uh, the author of Hebrews, taking that language from Leviticus 17, sums it up in his own words this way, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, that Old Testament sacrificial system, it powerfully illustrated by experience for its worshipers the need for a sacrifice. The problem with it, though, is that in their heart of hearts, even though the people knew that this is how God wanted them to worship Him, and there was a way in which this animal was providing a covering for their sins before God, they knew in their heart of hearts that these animal sacrifices could never permanently deal with the problem of their sins. And the author of Hebrews explains to us how they knew it. He says, this is Hebrews chapter 10, the old covenant law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder constantly, year after year of sins, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A sacrifice had to be made that bore a closer resemblance to us than animals not made in God's image. And so, at the proper time, God's Son added humanity to His divine nature, came into the world, and why did He come into the world? He said it Himself, not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom. For There's our word again, redeemed, ransom. He gave His life as a ransom to redeem many. And the reason I go down this rabbit, tale about, uh, rabbit trail about Old Testament sacrifice is because I want to make sure, beloved, that we don't think of forgiveness as an easy thing. 
Our forgiveness created massive problems for God the Father. He's perfectly holy and righteous and the just judge of the cosmos, and it's because of His position as judge that He can't just let sins go unpunished. He can't allow our trespasses to just be swept under the rug. And so the only way for us to be forgiven was for Him to give up His only beloved Son to a violent death where His blood was shed for the benefit of many. In West Africa in 1927, uh, a blood specimen was taken by a man named Asibi. He was sick with yellow fever. There was no vaccination for yellow fever at the time, and uh, the physician who was there, was, he, he wanted to create one. He was trying to create one. Uh, there was a, a monkey that had arrived from India uh, that they were using in the lab, and so he, he tried to inoculate the monkey with a specimen taken from Asibi. And uh, a crazy thing happened. The monkey died, but a CB actually recovered. And, uh, and so for many years, the vaccine for yellow fever was manufactured from the blood of Yusebi. His, uh, there was a blood sample taken, and for years in laboratories, cultures were made of Asibi's blood where they, they grew uh, this virus um, uh, that, that was then used to create the vaccine for yellow fever. And for most of the 1900s, it passed from one lab to another through repeated cultures, through constant multiplication, and the blood of one man from West Africa offered immunity to yellow fever literally for millions of people around the globe. Um, you and I have been rescued from a disease far worse than yellow fever, a disease that has eternal consequences, the disease of sin. And we've been rescued through the blood of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our redemption is through His blood. Now, notice that right after saying that our redemption is through His blood in verse 7, Paul adds this phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, that phrase, don't let your eyes glaze over, that phrase is appositional. What we mean by appositional is that that phrase defines what came directly in front of it. So, what does it mean uh, that we have redemption through His blood? Well, that, that redemption means our trespasses have been forgiven. And uh, that definition uh, is forgiveness. So, when we talk about God's forgiveness that Christ's blood purchased, we're really talking about two things. First of all, God removes the verdict of guilty from us. When God forgives us, He removes our guilty verdict. But number two, He cancels the sentence of death that our guilty verdict deserved. So when we say God forgives us, what we mean is God is not going to consider us guilty. He's not going to keep on treating us like we're guilty, and He's also not going to punish us according to our guilt. And the main thing I want you to notice about this forgiveness, forgiveness verse 7, is that we have it in the present tense, right? Uh, beginning of verse 7, we, present tense, have redemption. We have forgiveness. We live in a state of forgiveness now. God has removed our legal guilt, uh, the legal guilt of our trespasses. He's canceled the penalty those trespasses deserve. And the reason He can do so and maintain His justice is because the penalty for those trespasses was already paid by Christ. Uh, so, when someone comes to Christ, if God was to punish them for their sins eternally, He would be punishing the same sin twice, and that would be unjust. There's no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. 
So this irreversible decision by God to forgive those who place their faith in Jesus, this is why the psalmist says things like, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. This is why Micah says, He casts all our sins into the depth of the sea. They're lost, they're gone, never to be found again. That's forgiveness. So our redemption was paid through Christ's blood, and it secures for us a permanent forgiveness from trespasses. But there's one other phrase that defines our redemption, and it's this, according to the riches of His grace. The spring from which our redemption and forgiveness flows is from the heart of God. God is by nature gracious. He delights in giving His grace to others and showing off how gracious He is. But the question is, what does that mean? What does grace even mean? What's the meaning of that word? Well, if you look up the word grace in a, like a theological dictionary or a, a systematic theology, you'll probably find a definition like this. Uh, grace is unmerited or undeserved favor that, that God bestows on someone. And I think that's true. That's a true definition. But I think a simpler definition that works would be God doing good to those who don't deserve it that would be a good definition of His grace. Mercy is when He doesn't give people the penalty or consequences that their evil works deserve. The other side of that coin is, grace is God giving people good things and being good to them even when they don't really deserve it from Him. That's the idea of grace. And He gives forgiveness according to the riches of His grace. What does that mean? Well, those words, according to, very important. Imagine for a moment that you had two wealthy men, and they give to charity. The first man gives less than one-tenth of one percent of everything he has to this charity. Now, because he's so wealthy, it's still a lot of money, and the charity is very thankful for his kind gift. But what he has done is he has given out of or from his riches in the, in the Greek way of thinking. The second man gives an enormous gift to charity. He gives the most precious portion of his estate to charity. He has given according to his riches, right? When, when God blessed us with the riches of his grace, he didn't give like a tenth of a percent of his grace. He gave up his only beloved son to torture and death for us. So he gave according to the riches of His grace. So, our redemption, that the main point of verse 7 is that we, our freedom has been purchased by someone else. We've been set free by a payment someone else made, and that redemption was paid through Christ's blood. It secures forgiveness for our trespasses, and the motive behind it was God's grace, and He gave according to the riches of His grace. Now, Having preached that, I want to make sure that I always remind you, I want to make sure I never forget to remind you that these truths we learn are not just meant to fill our heads. This is meant to transform us. God's Word is always meant to change us in some way, to, to give us hope and comfort, to warn us, to challenge us. It's meant to transform us and make us different. And in that vein, I want to remind you of something. I, many of you already know this, and even if you didn't quite know it, I'm sure you sensed it. Uh, I want to remind you that there are three dimensions to redemption that are taught in the New Testament. There is a way in which you can look at our redemption as past, present, and future. We're looking today at a past tense sense or dimension 
of our redemption. I mean, it's present tense in, in the sense that we have redemption, but the reason we have it is because there was a day in the past when we placed our faith in Christ, and when we did that, we were given redemption through His blood, and we now enjoy in the present the benefits of His redemption. The second dimension of redemption in the New Testament is a future redemption which uh, the New Testament speaks of us as destined for, on the one hand, but something that we haven't actually experienced quite yet. A good example of that would be Romans 8.23. And Romans 8.23, Romans 8.23 is at the end of a paragraph where Paul is talking about uh, the way that we have to live under the effects of a sin-cursed world. We all have, if you will, uh, in Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is the portion of Scripture where Eve takes the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden. She was deceived by the uh, serpent, and she ate. She gave to her husband, and Adam, who wasn't deceived, knowingly transgressed God's law and plunged the world into sin. That's Genesis 3. That's why I like to say we have a Genesis 3 hangover, all right? We, we all suffer from a Genesis 3 hangover, and at the end of that paragraph, this is what Paul says, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. That's a great thing, right? Like, oh, you would think this would be great. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Our bodies groan. Our marriages groan. Our churches groan. We groan, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. The redemption, there's our word, the redemption of our bodies. There is a future day of redemption coming when all the defects in our bodies and also all the defects in our souls will be completely taken away. And there are other portions of the New Testament that talk about whether resurrection body, that when we see Jesus, we will never sin again because we will be like Him because we see Him as He is. There's a day coming where our souls and bodies will be perfected, and that's called a day of redemption, but we haven't quite experienced it yet. That's the future dimension of redemption. What I want to close with today, though, is reminding you of one aspect of redemption, and that is the present aspect, the middle dimension of redemption between our forgiveness, this forgiveness we enjoy, and the future day of our resurrected bodies and perfected souls. And to show you that, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. I want to show you the present dimension of our redemption. 1 Peter 1.17. I'm going to read verses uh, 17 through 19. Peter says uh, to the churches, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed, there's our word again, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Based on the way Peter uses that word redeemed there in verse 18, I want to argue with, with this with you. Our redemption is not just the forgiveness of our trespasses and a future day of uh, redemption where we have new bodies and per per, uh, perfected souls. It is also a present tense release 
from futile ways of living. Though we are imperfect, though each of us still falls into sin, there is a real change in us that's been secured by the blood of Christ that releases us from lawlessness and gives us a new power for good works. By virtue of being born as sinners into a sin-cursed world, you and I were born into futile, empty, fruitless, useless ways of doing life, ways of doing life passed down to us through our environment, ways of life that taught us by example and coaching from our forefathers to live in empty, deceptive, self-defeating, self-destructive ways of life, ways that taught us that we should live for money and possessions and pleasure, and power, and accomplishments, none of which can reconcile us to God, and all of which eventually slip through your fingers. You can't take them with you. We were discipled in defining our significance and identity in temporary things, but now we've been set free from that futile way of living. Virtually everything we were taught by the educational system and books and the plots of movies and television programs and media taught us to value the physical more than the spiritual and the temporary more than the eternal and to value the approval of other people more than the approval of God. We were nurtured and raised, many of us, by our own parents into thinking that whatever we want for ourselves overrules what God says. But in the long run, those are all futile ways of living. By the blood of Christ, you've been set free from frittering your life away, working for things that will only pass away. You've been ransomed from needing the approval of other people. Uh, You don't need their affirmation anymore. You have the affirmation of Christ. You've been set free from being a slave to the desires of your flesh that are actually suicidal. They'll get you killed in the end if you don't eventually learn to say no to them. By God's grace, you and I have been released from being prisoners of our appetites. We don't have to feast on the delicacies that the world and the devil offers to us that have made us so overgrown with flesh, we can't walk out an open door into freedom that we should have in Christ. If you're in Christ, you haven't just been forgiven of sin, you've been set free from sinning. Let's pray.